Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of the Locked In Podcast. My name is Ani. My name is Shree. We took a bit of a bye week, a bit of a break. We haven't been active for the past week. Excuse us, we just wanted to refresh, recoup, but we are back and better than ever. Lots and lots of sports happened that we were actually able to watch and enjoy for some parts of it and not enjoy for other parts of it. The not enjoyment for me comes from the Los Angeles Dodgers winning the World Series, which I am very sad about as a Giants fan. Tree, I guess, is sad about, but like the A's and Dodgers aren't really rivals, but that happened. The sadness for me, I guess, comes from, and we'll get to this, it, it's a certain managerial decision that Tampa Bay manager Kevin Cash happened to do, but we'll, we'll get to that soon. Yeah, but we're going to talk about the World Series first and the Dodgers winning and then Justin Turner's whole thing. Then we'll go into the NFL and do our previews for week eight, which is set to be a pretty good week based on how good the Thursday night football game was. Then we'll go into a little bit of NBA news. Essentially, the 2000 Suns are being recreated in the aggregate as part of the Nets coaching staff, which is really interesting. Some interesting hires, Daryl Morey going to the 76ers. We'll see how that plays out. Some other interesting NBA stuff going on as well. So we'll talk about that. But first, the World Series, the Dodgers won the World Series, their first since 1986 or 1988, one of those two, maybe it was 1987, I don't know, the first in a long, long time. I'm, I'm happy for Vin Scully, famous and longtime Dodgers broadcaster, because he got to see another World Series win, and it's been like almost 30 years since he saw, or over 30 years since he's seen the last one, right? So I'm happy that he, in his old age, finally got to see it. He's been with this team for so long, the, the, the stadium. Dodger Stadium is on Vince Scully Way. They even renamed the, the the street the stadium's on after him. He means that much to the team, and I'm happy that he got to see that. But, I mean, this was an absolutely crazy series. The first two games were, were pretty cut and dry. Clayton Kershaw pitched really well, which was surprising to a lot of people. So, not surprising to some people, but just given his past playoff performances, and especially World Series performances, we were like, oh, is he going to pitch well? But it may be that the Astros and their trash-banging cheating may have tarnished Clayton Kershaw's reputation, and this may have sort of undone that. I know, Shri, you believe in that, right? Well, there was a stat that said that if you take out Kershaw's World Series 2017 against the Houston Astros, his postseason ERA drops from, I think, around 4.3 to around like 3.75, which is... I mean, compared to his usual regular season standards, still not great, but a 3.75 ERA is at least respectable. It's passable for a postseason performance. And what I saw from Kershaw in this World Series, and he's another guy I'm like genuinely happy for that the Dodgers won because that's, I think, a huge monkey off of his back, you know, with all the people talking about how he's one of the greatest regular season pitchers ever, but can never deliver in the brightest lights, biggest stage. I think his two games in this series kind of cemented that final piece to an otherwise pretty perfect legacy that he is one of the best pitchers of our time, and now he's proven that he can do it in the World Series, which is baseball's brightest stage. So I'm happy for him. I think he really changed the narrative for his just outlook in general and what people remember him as. But the story of the World Series is ultimately going to rest on why Tampa Bay starting pitcher Blake Snell was pulled in Game 6. So, some context for those who either don't follow baseball or want to know why 
I'm so mad at what I'm going to be talking about. Game six involved. It's a, it's a do or die for the Rays at this point. They're down 3-2 in the series, and it's not like they have a choice. Like, everyone is available. All hands on deck. It's just win or go home. And their starting pitcher for this game was the AL Cy Young winner two years ago. He was 21-5 and with a 1-8 ERA, which is unquestionably unbelievable. So this guy has the stuff to go deep into games. Now, one stat about Blake Snell is that since 2019, I think since June... He had gone 19 straight starts without completing six innings. Part of this is because of the way Tampa Bay just embraces baseball philosophy. They rely on their bullpen pitchers, the the relievers, the guys who've closed the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth innings. And they have a lot of good relievers. So they usually only need their starters to go four and a half, maybe five innings, something like that, just so that they can get the game to their bullpen. In game six, Blake Snell looked like the Cy Young winner from two years ago. He looked dominant. He was mixing his his nasty 97-mile-per-hour fastball with an 87 changeup, 89 slider, just absolute wipeout pitches. The top of the order for the Dodgers is Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, and Justin Turner. And these are three of the objectively better hitters in baseball. Mookie and Corey, and Corey Seager eventually won World Series MVP. The first time through the order... Mookie and Corey struck out. The second time through the order, Mookie and Corey struck out. And Blake Snell is dealing. He's allowed one hit through five innings in this game. And first out of the sixth, he gets in one pitch. So right now his pitch count is somewhere in the 70s. He's through five. It was 78. Yes, 78 pitches at this point. He's cruising. Looks dominant. The nine spot, the nine hitter, Austin Barnes, hits a single. Like a, a bloop shot single, just inconsequential. Well, ultimately it ended up being consequential, but this is one hit. This is just a, a soft contact, little flare to center field. And I could I could already tell from the way Tampa Bay plays baseball and how Kevin Cash manages this team, I knew Blake Snell was going to get pulled. But that was the second hit he had allowed all game. Two hits through five plus innings. And I don't, understand the decision to go to Nick Anderson, who a reliever for the Rays, who in the regular season for the past two years has been one of the best relievers in baseball. But in this playoffs, the last six games Nick Anderson played, he allowed a run. So I guess my thing is that one, I don't agree with taking Snell out when he's pitching the way he has and the way he was handling the top of the order in Mookie Betts, Corey Seager, and those two are coming up. But also the decision to go to Nick Anderson instead of someone like Diego Castillo or any other bullpen arm the Rays have, who just have been proving it in the postseason a little more than Nick Anderson. Yeah, it was a puzzling decision. And as you said, the Rays have been doing this for a while. I remember last year, they pulled their starter after two innings in one game. There was madness. And it wasn't like he gave up a ton of runs. They just have this very interesting philosophy. So, I mean, they stuck by their guns and they see now that you lose sometimes. And I think of this kind of maybe in a similar situation to a money ball approach where, you know, just because you lose doesn't mean the philosophy itself is wrong. Maybe the execution itself was poor and you don't have to follow this philosophy every single time. You can make decisions on your own that are a bit separate and then see what happens. And I think that's exactly what should have happened here. 
you know, the Rays philosophy and maybe even the analytics that they follow. And the Rays do have a very large analytics department, one of the largest in the uh, Major League Baseball. Maybe their analytics said, oh yeah, you, you have to pull Blake Snell. But just watching from a baseball baseball perspective, he was doing super well. And as you said, he struck out Mookie Betts and he struck out some of the people on the top of the order several times, two times already. So Mookie Betts is coming around. I think you let him stick for at least Mookie Betts and see what happens. And yeah, Anderson, the, re- the reliever, was not playing well. So you also have to go with sort of hot hand, which might be a fallacy and is a fallacy, in fact. But still, I mean, what isn't a fallacy, especially in baseball, which is, you know, something very interesting, specific to baseball, is the mind games that especially these baseball relievers have. It's sometimes when these baseball relievers get put into bad situations, they just end up psyching themselves out and not doing well. And if Anderson had given up a run in each of his last five games up until that point in these playoffs, then just don't put him in at that point. And we've seen so many other teams not play their starters and not play their pitchers because they aren't doing well and because they're on a bad streak. And it's not like a free throw or a three-pointer where, you know, if you make it, the next one's more likely to make. That's not true. It's nothing like that. It's just it's baseball, especially pitching, is such a one-on-one battle. It's you versus this batter, right? And so especially these reliever pitchers tend to be really susceptible to, to psyching themselves out to mind games and to losing confidence quickly. If they have to give up one or two hits or even a run, the next start is really hard for them to bounce back. And in playoffs where, you know, everything's sort of shortened and there's no time to recoup or reset and it feels like one long string of things that are break, it's kind of hard to recoup and reset. So, yeah. And here's my thing with analytics, which I'm glad you brought up. Like, the analytics say this year Mookie Betts did not hit left-handers well. He crushed it against righties. But against lefties, he, he struggled. Like, it didn't bring down his overall average too much, but he obviously doesn't hit left-handers the same way he does right-handers. And when you take a left-hander out who's at a low pitch count, hasn't lost too much velocity in his pitches, and it looks like he was going to make all the adjustments necessary for the third time through the order, to go with a right-hander who had been giving up runs all postseason, that's so anti-analytics. I can't even defend a little of what Kevin Cash did. Yeah. I mean, the thing about analytics and Mina Kimes, NFL football analyst says this a lot analytics just give another piece of the puzzle to to what the manager or what the coach should make the decision on whatever decision they make you know sometimes it can be based on analytics but the most important part in sports is execution right so maybe you know analytics should have said yeah we need to take snell out because he gave up this hit and because he has 78 pitches and whatever and maybe they were planning to do sort of madison bumgarner giants thing and bring him in for like the last few innings in the in, in game seven, if they were to get to that point, which is what happened with Madison Bumgarner in the 2014 World Series against the Royals, they sort of brought him in as a reliever stage the last five innings of the game, and he sort of crushed it, one World Series MVP, right? So something like that, maybe that's what they're planning. Maybe that's what an- analytics told them to do, but the execution of pulling Blake Snell is putting in the right reliever pitcher. So maybe we shouldn't be blaming manager Kevin Cash are pulling out Blake Snell maybe we should be blaming him for what pitcher to put in for Blake Snell but in my mind if you're the Rays you were gifted this game six because you should not have won game four uh, we didn't talk about this but for those of you that saw it was all over the internet the end of game four was literally an early Christmas present wrapped and handed to the Rays by the Dodgers just a crazy a misfield by Chris Taylor the center fielder 
a bad throw. The catcher, Austin Barnes. He's their catcher, right, Austin Barnes? He was for that game. Yeah, he was for that game. Yeah, he missed a throw, and the runner for the Rays, who was on third base, fell down, was literally on the ground in between third base and home plate. And he saw the ball rolling away from the catcher, Austin Barnes, and he got up and scored. Like, that was a gift handed to the Rays, and you have to take advantage of these gifts that should not be handed to you in World Series. It's kind of like the the Wade Boggs incident. And, yeah, I mean, it's just they took this easy, easy gift, this easy, easy win that they shouldn't have gotten. They didn't capitalize in Game 5. They did not capitalize in Game 6. And it's okay if you lose Game 5, but you have to come out swinging for the fences in Game 6. Another thing is the Rays' offense, they only scored one run up to that point in Game 6, right? So somebody also tweeted, it doesn't matter if Blake Snell was in or not. At like some point, the Dodgers were going to score. There's, this lineup is just too hard-hitting, too heavy-hitting of a lineup to not score at all, right? And the Rays are not like the Dodgers. They don't have these huge power hitters that have had reputations. Like They don't have Seager. They don't have Mookie Betts. They don't have Justin Turner. We could all hit home runs or all just generate hits and generate runs really quickly. So the fact that the, that the Rays had only scored one run up to that point was detrimental to them anyways. I agree with that to a certain extent. They should have scored more. And if they were going to win that game, they needed to score more than one run, regardless of how well or badly their pitching was playing. Well, usually what's crazy about the Rays' run in the playoffs is that what they pride themselves on is like manufacturing runs. So they just get guys on base, steal these fly outs, these ground outs, these sack flies... Anything to just get runs across the plate. But Randy Orozarena had himself a crazy playoffs. And the race suddenly just started hitting home runs out of nowhere through the Division Series, the LCS. And even like going into the World Series, the first couple of games, most of their runs just came on the long bomb. And Orozarena was one of the huge reasons why. But I, I, I just think that if you're, even if you're only up 1-0 and people use the argument that, oh, you should score more. I'm continuing a 1-0 game with the pitcher who's won a Cy Young before. And the guy whose stuff has... it's It looked better than it has in like one and a half years. Because Blake Snell's been dealing with injuries. He's been dealing with, you know, this new thing where, oh, I'm only going to go five innings. I'm only going to pitch... A, I'm going to pitch a little less than I'm used to because our manager believes in our bullpen so much. So I think it takes a lot for him to agree with that. But in the game's... Go home, winner go home situation, game six. I'm riding my ace if he's pitching the way he is. That's just the fundamental thing it comes down to for me. Yeah, and this is this, this is the World Series. We've seen in previous World Series where managers stick by their hottest pitcher, and we saw how well that worked out. And I am keep on bringing it up again. The Giants in 2014 stuck by Madison Bumgarner, and he pitched one of the best postseason pitching performances and one of the best pitching performances in history over that that postseason and that playoff run where they won the World Series for the third time in five years. Mm-hmm. And in those situations, when you have this great pitcher, you have to stick by them. And I, I agree with you. I think the fact that they scored one run is independent of what they did with Blake Snell. I just am saying that their offense should have put more on the board and you can't just pin this on the manager and the pitching staff. But granted, a large amount of the blame should be put on them. But I mean, yeah, for the Dodgers, congrats to Vin Scully for seeing another... World Series win in his lifetime. Clayton Kershaw, he's kind of been the NL rival of Justin Verlander throughout his career. You know, both really, really good, multiple Cy Young Award winners, but Justin Verlander's done it in the playoffs. He sort of helped that Tigers team that made it to the World Series in 2012 against the Giants. They got swept, but he sort of made up for that by winning the World Series with the Astros. 
And Clayton Kershaw's been to the World Series. Now this is like his third time. Third or time. Second time, right, in the past few years. Well, I think right. it's his third in general, right? Like they've they've made the World Series three times in recent memory. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna double check. Astros Dodgers World Series appearances. Um No, is this twenty eighteen? Well yeah, I'm just checking how many times they they made the World Series in recent memory. But the Dodgers yeah, so made they the made it. They made it 2017. They made it 2018. 2017 and, and 2018. Yeah, and then 2020. Yeah. Also, and the Red Sox. The, uh, remember? 2018. Oh yes, yes, yes. You're right. Yeah. But anyway, Clayton Kershaw has not had the greatest World Series or even playoffs compared to his regular season, where he's known as one of the greatest regular season pitchers of all time. Even to a point where people are making jokes on Twitter that, oh, you know, they should leave Clayton Kershaw out of the roster for the playoffs, and I think. Even without this World Series, Clayton Kershaw is a shoe-in first ballot Hall of Famer. But with no this especially, he has to be. Right. And there's now his case is just foolproof. Like, even before, there was, there's no way he wasn't getting into the Hall. But now it's like, I, it's not even more of the Hall of Fame thing, but kind of the how will this player be remembered. And I think Kershaw was kind of like the James Harden of baseball in that he has all these crazy regular season achievements. He... His stat lines during the regular season are they they make you think, wow, like how is this guy not one of the best like four pitchers of all time? And then you look at his postseason numbers and they're just slightly not what we're used to. But I think this is a huge step in the right direction in changing his narrative. So Yeah. And I think the biggest storyline that happened after the game, slash during the game, was sort of midway through the game, around the same time the the Blake Snell decision happened. Justin Turner was magically taken off third base. And we didn't see him in the dugout, and we were really confused. The MLB, after the game, later released that Justin Turner had tested positive for COVID-19, which was strange because the MLB was supposed to be in a bubble. So apparently that day, his test result was inconclusive. So the test tested a sample again during the game. And during the game, they found out that he was positive. So he was forced, or the Dodgers manager, Dave Roberts, was forced to pull Justin Turner because he was positive and he was meant to isolate. But the thing is, we saw him on the field after the game celebrating. He kissed his wife. He took a team picture, was hugging people. They were quote-unquote wearing masks unmasked up. But we saw many instances of Justin Turner without a mask. And it's really funny because Justin Turner was one of the people uh, towards the beginning and even towards the middle of the season that was echoing what the MLB wanted, which was to take COVID-19 seriously and to t- make its players take COVID-19 seriously. And Justin Turner was one of the guys who was like, look, to all the rest of the MLB players, he said essentially, look, we need to take this seriously. We need to get towards the very end. Some people may argue, yeah, it's the last game. You know, it doesn't really matter. And if you're talking about baseball in terms of the viability of having the rest of the World Series, then yeah, you know, it doesn't really matter, I guess, because the World Series is done. But if you're talking about it from a moral standpoint and from a health standpoint, you are you have tested positive for a virus. And even if you don't have any symptoms, that is still known that once you test positive, you can transmit the virus to other people, right? You have all these people's families that are all in Arlington, Texas, in a suburb of Dallas, and they're all probably going to fly back to LA and then fly across the country. You're willingly and knowingly potentially infecting your teammates and their families, and then they're going to go home and infect the people that they live with, right? I understand that you just won the World Series and it's been a long time coming, your third World Series in the past four years. You finally won it and you've been one of the best postseason players in those postseasons when you made it this far. 
But still, like, this is not a usual scenario. This is not a usual year. You tested positive, quarantine. You know, it's your fault you tested positive. You're in a bubble. How how did you test positive in the first place? Right? So now we have to wait and see what the aftermath of this is. I really hope no one else tests positive. But, you know, he was seen kissing his wife. So, like, we'll really see what happens. But I really don't know. It's just irresponsible. Like, uh, I, I understand the emotion that comes with winning a championship. And you want to be out there with your guys, your family, everyone who's been there. But there's <laughs> there's a clear line between wanting to embrace the moment and endangering the health of people around you and especially for someone like Dodgers manager Dave Roberts who I think he's a cancer survivor and he's someone who's been through the ringer in terms of being hospitalized and getting treatment and you don't want to put people like that in danger of you know like yes you may not have symptoms like you said but like it other people could like it's just we don't know so like a lot about the virus and what he did was just not right. And MLB released this memo saying, oh, Justin Turner broke protocol. I still think they were too nice. Like, there should be a, a significant suspension. Like, I think the suspension that should occur because of this incident should be on par with something related to, like, PEDs or something. Because PEDs, you're endangering yourself. You're not putting anyone else's livelihood at risk. With something like this, you're not only risking your own life, even if you have symptoms, don't have symptoms, I don't care. It's the people around you and the loved ones around you. And that's just wrong of Justin Turner. Yeah. I mean, we'll see if they maybe implement some sort of suspension towards the beginning of the season. But you do know that the MLB commissioner's office does not like the Dodgers based on the Joe Kelly incident. But mm-hmm. I honestly doubt that there are going to be any repercussions, which sucks. You know, it, it is what it is. It sucks. And I'm, I'm really mad at Justin Turner. I think personally that they should... Be, be forced to give up the World Series championship. I don't think that they should. I think they should just automatically go to the Rays. No, you know? I think that's not personally happen. as a, as an unbiased Giants fan. I think that's what should happen. <laughs> Sadly, that will not happen. But I mean, it was a good World Series. Honestly, it was a pretty good playoffs. Uh, sad that the A's didn't make it. But you know, it isn't the playoffs if the A's don't get out of the second round. Hey, so. hey we won one series this year, which, you know, I'll I'll take what I can get. We go from zero to one. And, hey, the last time the Dodgers won the World Series, the A's won the World Series the year after. You know, 89 was the World Series that the A's won during Loma Prieta and everything. So some questionable circumstances surrounding that championship. But we're, we're just so used to questionable circumstances surrounding every sports event nowadays. So, you know, we it is what it is. But... That's enough baseball for now. We're going to we're going to switch gears. We're going to talk about some NFL stuff. We're just going to be previewing week 8. There's already one game that's been in the books. The Falcons beat the Panthers on Thursday night football 25 to 17. A rare instance of the Falcons holding a fourth quarter lead and actually closing the game. Yeah, I mean, I think the Panthers would have to done a lot because they had the ball at their 32-yard line. They had three timeouts. They had to march down 68 yards get the touchdown, and get the two-point conversion, and then hope that they don't leave enough time for the Falcons to score, then win the coin toss in overtime and score a touchdown, or hope that there's a turnover, you know, field goal, whatever happens, right? There's a lot that the Panthers needed to do to win the game. So it seemed of the Falcons' wins, or of the Falcons' potential wins, (laughs) when they had a lead, the most secure. Uh, But, you know... Crazier things have happened. We see, or we saw how the Falcons lost to the Lions last week because of a Todd Gurley touchdown. And I think Troy Aikman was saying this, and I kind of believe it too. A lot of people, especially on social media, were 
were, you know, blaming Todd Gurley for scoring the touchdown. And if you look at the play, he tried really hard not to. It's just the linebacker Mm -hmm. sort of wrapped him up and sort of pushed him into the end zone a little bit, and he was losing his balance. And he would have fallen down if he was in the open field, but somebody was about to tackle him and trying to get off of that and trying to go as far as he could. And we've seen Todd Gurley not score before when he was a potential MVP frontrunner. And it was really important for the Rams to win that game. He didn't score. So I'm not calling Todd Gurley a selfish guy or anything, right? It is partially Todd Gurley's fault for scoring. But the defense was like Swiss cheese at the end of that game. Like the Lions marched all the way back up the field and managed to score a touchdown on the last play. Like it's ridiculous. Part of the blame has to be on the defense as well. And the defense has allowed so many last minute comebacks. Matt Ryan has put this team into leads. And maybe he hasn't been able to finish in the fourth quarter, but the fact that he puts this team to 10, 15, 20-point leads in the third or fourth quarter, and they just give it up. The defense has to be blamed, right? But the defense actually pulled through. They got an interception. The weather was a bit a miss, a foul. Uh, Teddy Bridgewater did throw a bad pick, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, there was also the late hit on Bridgewater midway through the mm. third that I, yeah. I didn't like, especially because Bridgewater has had head injuries before. So it's just always scary seeing someone who's been through that get hit like that again but thankfully came back finished out the game panthers are a very interesting team they're bad but they're competitive and i think that's the same with the falcons they're just bad but competitive so i don't know um just a a fun thursday game um falcons have now lost three in a row which was weird because they looked around three and one i think and they looked really really good and then they've lost three in a row now they're three and four and you mean you mean the panthers Ah, yeah, sorry, sorry. Yes. Yeah, the Panthers, my bad. The Falcons have won, are now two and two and six. Six, two and six. And um, one thing I do have to say is, like the Falcons, towards the beginning of the game, had a fourth and literally inches to score, and they kicked a field goal. And, I mean, if you, if you think about that now, it kind of makes sense because the game was an eight-point game. If they hadn't kicked that field goal and they missed going forward on fourth and goal, then it would only be a five-point game. But the thing is, like you're one in five or one in six. There, there's no point in, in kicking the field goal and being safe. You just have to, you have to either try and win or lose. And like, I, I guess, you know, if you kick the field goal, you're trying to lose, but not as hard as if you not, I'm not sure. Like, are they trying to tank? Are they not trying to tank? The strategy is very unclear right now. Yeah. I mean, especially when you have goal line weapons, like Gurley, Hayden Hurst, Julio Jones, like it and Calvin Ridley, like who had a quiet game, but it's still Calvin, Calvin Ridley. So, yeah, I don't he, know. He wasn't injured at that point, so you know he was he was injured later in the game. But at that point, he was healthy. So yeah, I don't know. Confusing. But <laughs> let's, okay, let's move on. Let's talk um, Vikings Packers. Which normally this game would have a little more luster. It's like a nice NFC North showdown. But the Vikings are one and five. Packers are five and one. Looked way better last week. Um, fantasy implications: probably no Aaron Jones. Probably no Dalvin Cook. He has a groin injury. Dalvin Cook will be playing. Aaron Jones will not be playing. Okay, so Cook is Cook was questionable as of like three hours ago. So I don't know. No, he's playing. I saw. I'm I'm very okay. up to date with my injury news. <laughs> yeah, so I think this is an easy Packers win, right? No, for sure. And last time in the first game of the season, we saw how Devontae Adams torched the Vikings, and we saw how Devontae Adams torched last week. So we'll see if he puts up the numbers that he did last week um titans bengals um only thing i want to say about this is that carlos dunlap is no longer a cincinnati bengal he is now on the seattle seahawks and the seahawks didn't have to give up a lot to get him so 
I think the Bengals are just kind of selling house. Um, Joe Burrow is going to be shorthanded because Joe Mixon's not playing in this game. So there's whatever 1% chance he had at maybe stealing 1% of a win is just gone. So I don't know. Easy Titans win, I think. And, and John Ross put out the statement that says, I want to play football, but yeah, I'm not playing football. Essentially throwing some shade at the Bengals. So we'll see what happens with him. He might get traded too. I mean, I think he'd be a good downfield speed weapon. But it mm-hmm. seems like Joe Burrow's developed some great chemistry with T. Higgins, but another wide receiver on the other side of the ball on the Titans that sort of blossomed after some injuries this year is A.J. Brown. So yes. he's looked really, really good. He had a pretty good game last week against the Steelers. Ended up losing that one. Very close game. But I think the Titans, yeah, will take this one too. The Jets and the Chiefs is the next matchup. And what Frank Clark said was absolutely hilarious to me. Sure <laughs> was it the thing funny. about um, how the Jets are still a good football team? Yeah, I'm just, dude, like, are you, is that a joke? And, like, Adam Schefter retweeted, and I'm like, I agree. I'm like, are, do you really agree? Because this Jets team is awful. It's not like you're talking about the Panthers or the Chargers or the Falcons. You know, the Falcons have a pretty bad record. It's not like you're talking about one of those teams. You're talking about the Jets, dude, they have no, they, the only game they were competitive in was this last game against the Bills, where they somehow managed to have a lead uh, for part of the game. But, I, no, mean, I don't think this Jets team is, yeah, know, and, and in this game, they're without Crowder and Brashard Perryman. So whatever yeah. weapons they have, they're just not there. I think that Patrick Mahomes could not play the whole game, and they would still win the game. Easily. Dude, they could start Tyreek Hill at quarterback and probably still win. Yeah, we've seen him throw a flea flicker or two. He's not bad. I mean, he's no Mohamed Sanu, but you know. And yeah, this Chiefs team, too many weapons. They played pretty well last week, but their defense really stepped up. But, you know, the Broncos did not play well last week. Uh, shout out to Melvin Gordon for being the fumble machine. But, hmm. yeah, I think the, the Chiefs easily take this one. <laughs> now, the Colts and the Lions. I picked the Colts. You picked the Lions. Why did you pick the Lions? What about them makes you think that they can beat this Colts defense? Have you seen them since Galladay's come back? They look like they, a different team. They look like a completely different football team. It's just their offense is more dynamic. They have no issues moving the ball downfield. And they're, this is a bad analogy, but they're kind of like Chiefs light in the sense that like their offense creates so many problems for the other team, but their defense can't really stop anyone. But what, what I think here is that I don't think the Colts have the offensive firepower to keep up with the Lions. I, I disagree with this because I think as long as the Colts stick to a game plan of ground and pound, where Jonathan Taylor and Phillip Rivers doesn't throw too many interceptions, then they should be okay. I think the Colts defense is gonna be a little a little stymied. Actually, I don't even okay. That sentence was a bad sentence. The Colts defense is going to make sure that this Lions offense is not going to be as productive as they were in the past few weeks. Now, let's mm-hmm. remember that this Colts defense is one of the highest scoring defenses in the league. They don't give up a lot of yards, they don't give up a lot of points. Right, And they also end up taking a lot of turnovers, end up scoring a lot. They have played some really bad teams. But still, they, they, do, they are a good defense, and you know, they do have some injuries, but I think this Colts defense will end up pulling through. Darius Leonard's also coming back, and he's a hugely important linebacker for that One Colts team. One of the best team, linebackers so. in the league. Yes. In the league. Crazy. I think crazy it'll be, this will be a fun game. Like, I think it's basically a pick em. Like I'm just taking the lines because I like what I've seen in the last few weeks. But I don't trust Matt Patricia at all. I do trust Matthew Stafford. Oh, I love Matthew Stafford, but I don't trust Matt Patricia. But one person I do trust is Ben Roethlisberger. And I think 
he is going to beat the Ravens and Lamar Jackson. And the Ravens don't look great as of late. I mean, they don't look bad, but they just, like, they have so many weapons. Remember when we said, oh, J.K. Dobbins is the steal of the draft? Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, we also said that Clyde edwards Elair is the steal of the draft, and he really was. But mm-hmm. we all said, oh, you know, J.K. Dobbins, Devin DuVernay, Lamar Jackson is going to be unstoppable. His accuracy has not been great, and I've talked about this before. He does not utilize Hollywood Brown as well as they should because they have such a strong run game and he can run as well. I don't know why they just don't play action it and throw to Hollywood Brown every single time. And I have Hollywood Brown on the fantasy team. Like, I need those points. No, the thing with the Ravens is that right now Lamar is kind of just cruising. Like They're just beating up on teams without really utilizing their offense to its full potential. And I think this game is a very good measuring stick on like what Baltimore needs to do if they want to win this division. Because Pittsburgh is a complete team. Their defenses look good. Chase Claypool has come out of nowhere to be one of the top like 10 receivers, at least fantasy-wise, this season. So but he did not do well last game. And I have Chase Claypool as well. And he did not perform for me. But luckily, I have Devontae Adams and A.J. Brown. Man, listen. My fantasy team this year has been off the charts. I've been doing so well with the with picking the players. Granted, I did make some stupid decisions. I did cut Justin Jefferson week one after drafting him. And, you know, I regret that heavily. I did cut Chase Claypool and had to pick him up back off waivers. But, you know, I feel like my drafting skills have been insane. I drafted Jonathan Taylor, and he's been playing super well. So, you know. But, I mean, I think for, for me, like from the game standpoint, because we don't really talk that much about fantasy, which, you know, maybe we should. I don't know. Let us know. A little, little fantasy pod. Yeah, who knows? But uh, I think the one thing about the Steelers right now is they don't have Devin Bush, right? Linebacker, uh-huh. he's out with an ACL. And having a really mobile linebacker that can play side to side is really useful when you're going up against Lamar Jackson, right? Because he can run, he can scramble. And if you have Devin Bush, that maybe limits the Lamar Jackson scrambling thing. So without him, it might be harder for the Steelers defense to stop him, but the Steelers pass rush is really good. Bud Dupree and TJ Wall are playing really, really well. So I don't know. I think it'll be difficult for the Steelers to lose this game because their defense is playing very well and they have so many offensive weapons, right? Like wide receivers, they have what? Deontay Washington, Juju Smith-Schuster, and Chase Claypool. All really, really good. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, this is your classic AFC North grinded out game in November, which I just feel like it's a staple of November. And I, I do have to say, I think like the AFC North might be one of the best divisions in the AFC, if not the best division, because they have the Steelers, who are obviously really good. They're undefeated this year. Right? They have the Ravens, who are really, really good, and they have Lamar Jackson. The Browns look up and coming this year, right? Mm-hmm. and they look to be good. And the Bengals have Joe Burrow. And the Bengals don't look great, but maybe over the next two or three years that they add some pieces, this might be you know competing with the NFC West to be one of the two best divisions in football. It's certainly... I definitely think it is already. Like Just yeah, in terms I, of like I, top-end I, teams, yes. Yeah, but the thing is, like, like the worst team in the NFC West... At this point, is like what the Cardinals? No, right? the Niners are four and three, and they're the worst. The Cardinals are, are five the Cardinals and two. Also four and three. Cardinals are five and two. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, the Niners are the worst team in the NFC West record wise, which is crazy, right? Yeah. So that just shows you how good the NFC West is. NFC West is on another tier, man. Just, yeah. They're so good. No, and the, what are the fun stories? Like just under the radar, but like the Ravens are using Des Bryant, who was recently signed to the practice squad. They're using him as Chase Claypool in practice to like prep for that style. So. I think that's super interesting. I think Des is eventually going to make the active roster. 
I, I don't see him just playing on the practice squad the rest of the year. I think he's just too talented, even if he's a little older. But we'll see. Maybe Lamar just doesn't utilize him as well. So I don't know what's going on with their offense. Hopefully they figure some stuff out. Rams Dolphins. Speaking of the NFC West, the Rams. Nice. Rams Dolphins is a lot of talk about Tua and is he going to succeed in the league? Was taking Fitzpatrick and moving him to a secondary role, was that the right thing to do at this point? Especially considering everyone respected Fitz. You know, they're starting to play like they want to compete for a wild card spot. Um I don't know. Like the the Rams obviously I think they're like they're clearly favored in terms of just like pure talent. I think they'll they'll win, but I I, I don't see the Dolphins just kind of rolling over and letting this be become a blowout, especially when Tua's starting. Yeah, I think the Dolphins defense has been playing pretty well. This Rams offense is quite good though and I think Playbook wise, Sean McVay is a better play caller than, you know, Brian Flores is a defensive play caller. Actually, that's not true. Brian Flores is a very good defensive play caller. This would be, I think, a closer game than people think it is. Mm-hmm. But I think it all depends on Tua. This is Tua's first game, right? And he is going against Aaron Donald. So we'll see how it is. This this Rams defense actually played played pretty well against the Bears. Some of that could be put on, you know, the the shoulders of Matt Nagy and Nick Foles. They did not play the greatest offensive game plan against the Bears defense. But, yeah, I mean, I picked up Tua because just based on how well Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow have been playing, if that's any indication to the the strength of this rookie class, then just then, then Tua has to play well. So I picked him up on, on fantasy as my backup quarterback, so we'll see what happens there. But I don't know. I, I think the Rams are going to win this game. But I think if Tua loses this game, like, you know, it's your first game in the NFL. Like, mm-hmm. Just because Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert had fantastic first games doesn't mean that your first game is going to be great, right? No, it's first not. It game have to be first game going up against Aaron Donald. No problem. Yeah, dude. it's going to be difficult, right? I mean, granted, like Justin Herbert did go up against the Chiefs, the defending Super Bowl champions, in his first game and should have won the game. If Anthony Lynn wanted to lose the game on purpose to make it seem like you know Tyrod Taylor's team, it was. But you know, let's uh, not your, get into your that. Chargers, right now. We'll get into that. The Chargers love hate relationship will never get old. Yeah. But uh, AFC East matchup, Patriots-Bills. Uh, Julian Edelman and Nikhil Harry will be out for Cameron Newton. So it will be interesting to see how he rebounds from what can only be described as an embarrassing loss the past few weeks. Just probably the worst performance of his career, like statistically. And I think he obviously plays better, but losing Edelman and Harry doesn't help. Um, I think the Bills win. I think this is the year the Patriots kind of, you know, fall back to earth a little. I still think overall they're a good team when all their guys are healthy. I think Sonia Michelle needs to do more in the offense and the run game. I don't think he's utilized to the fullest extent he can be. And I know they've been trying to get him going. So we'll see how that goes. Um, Josh Allen was in the MVP discussion before a couple of really lackluster weeks and I don't think he's that tier of quarterback yet, but overall on the season, I do like what I've seen from him. So maybe this is just an exhibition game for Josh Allen to really get his footing and, you know, make a statement again. Yeah, I think the Jets game was not great, but I think really the thing boils down to me is, like, usually I wouldn't have any confidence in the Bills, right? But I had even less confidence because Cam Newton has no Julian Edelman, no Nikhil Harry, no Sonny Michelle because he's also injured. So it's really... 
like not with his top three offensive weapons. I mean, maybe Rex Burkhead will pop off, but I really think that the Bills as a team are going to try and rebuild confidence and beat the Patriots, who they haven't had the greatest success against over the past two decades, right? And then mm-hmm. from the perspective of, of the Patriots, they just don't have those weapons, so I think it will be hard for them to win. I think if they did have those weapons, I'd choose the Patriots, but because they don't, I think the Bills are going to win this one. Uh, Raiders-Browns. So, I messed up, is what I have to say. Last week, the Raiders lost big against the Buccaneers. Um, I'm pretty sure the score was like just not. It, it was like forty to twenty-four, like forty-three, some absurd score, forty-three to twenty, I think. And the thing about that game was that it was twenty-four seventeen with eleven minutes left in the fourth. Oakland it was, was forty-five to twenty. Forty-five to twenty, sure. It was a close game beginning of the fourth, and Oakland lost like two offensive linemen. One was ejected. I think Gabe Jackson was ejected, and then someone else was out with injury. So they were already pretty banged up on that side. And Carr looked okay. Like he was making do with what he could. Aguilar had a great start to the game, but Philly Nelson Aguilar came back in the third quarter. Huge drops, just bad, not timely misplays and you know the Bucks are loaded on offense and Tom Brady has looked dynamite so I I think that game's final score is more misleading than how it actually was like it was a very competitive game entertaining game up until mid fourth late fourth so I don't want to put too much stock into that loss I still think I almost said Oakland again I think Las Vegas is all in all one of the better teams in the league but they're definitely in that same tier as the Browns, where we don't know if they're contenders or pretenders. So I I think this is a good like matchup game for both of these teams to kind of check themselves. Like, oh, where are we really? Like the Browns are five and two, but they could just as easily be, you know, three and four, and it wouldn't be surprising at all. So I don't know. I have the Raiders winning this because I I trust the offense of the Raiders a little more, especially now with the sad news that Odell Beckham is out for the season with the torn ACL. So I don't know. Yeah. In in our pick'em thing, I accidentally switched our picks. So I picked the Browns to win this one and Shree picked the Raiders to win this one. But in the thing I said I it said I picked the Raiders, which I never would. And it said Shree picked the Browns, which you never would because he promises to pick the Raiders every single game this season. I think the Browns defense is pretty good and I think it stopped the, the Raiders and I think their offense is still good enough. I mean, they didn't have OBJ for that entire game, and they managed to come back late against the the Bengals. And granted, it is the Bengals, but you know Baker Mayfield was able to utilize random guys like Donovan's, Donovan Peoples Jones and Higgins, and just like you know come back from it. So I think the Browns are five and two, and against the the Steelers, they look terrible. But I think against the Raiders, the Raiders don't do a great job of looking of, of making teams look bad. Right, the Raiders mm-hmm. usually play on par to the other team. I think it'll be a close game, but I think the Browns will pull this through. This has very like thirty-eight, thirty-five type potential. So I'm excited to see how where this one goes. But another game that honestly I'm excited for, like I really do want to see how this turns out, is Chargers Broncos because Justin Herbert's been getting a lot of buzz. You know, now there's the whole Pro Bowl buzz and all of that because like statistically he has been fantastic this season and. A lot of people are saying, one of my friends messaged me saying that 
oh, like as a Raider fan, you probably have like the third best quarterback in the division now because Mahomes and then people are saying Herbert and then Carr, which one, I think I'm not fully on board with that whole take yet. But listen, Herbert I, I has even looked if it was fantastic. True, you wouldn't agree with it. Even if it was true, you wouldn't agree with it. So no, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to be like a complete homer. Like if I like what I see from Herbert more than what I'd see from Carr, like, yes, I'll say like. He's a better quarterback, but it's just too early one. And he, you know, he's led them to almost wins, but there's still losses. So I don't know what to make of Herbert yet. I mean, here are some excuses for Justin Herbert. Number one, his defense in the second half has played garbage in all of the games. Like defensive rating wise, the Chargers are the third best defense in the first half. We are 29th in the second half. We, like, literally turn off the switch. It's unbelievable. Then the weapons, Mike Williams is seemingly always injured. And on the offensive side, Austin Eckler, who's a great pass-catching running back, maybe one of the best in the league, has been out, right? So he doesn't have all of his weapons, and people kept keep on getting injured. Now uh, Green, our tight end, like, twisted his ankle on catching the touchdown pass. So he doesn't have a full roster, and our defense doesn't have a full roster either. Derwin James, one of the best defensive players in the league, is injured. Drew, Drew, Drew Tranquil, linebacker, is injured as well. So, you know, it's not the greatest roster for the Chargers, and obviously a lot of injuries, and the offensive line is just garbage right now. And still the fact that he's managed to put up a fight and almost beat the Buccaneers, the Saints, right, and the Chiefs. And granted, against the, the Saints and the Chiefs, he had an opportunity to win the, win the game. But the defense just gave up stupid plays, and it was entirely the defense's fault, those losses. So... I mean, I'm all aboard the Justin Herbert hype train. I bought a jersey, you know, and this is really 180 from me and Shree talking about how I thought Justin Herbert was going to be a bust coming in during our draft live stream. And yeah, I, I regret those words. I think he looks really good and he's been making good decisions and like arm talent wise and physical, like physical, physical attributes wise, like even true, you have to agree. He looks amazing. Just with him, it's all about, like, the mental side of it, right? Like, does he make the good decisions? Like, does he turn the ball over, whatever? And I think also the biggest thing is our offensive play calling, I don't think has been unlocked yet. Like, I don't think that, like, we're giving him everything that he needs because he is a rookie, right? So we're trying to keep it simple and help him learn the offense. But I think he's, like, a smarter guy than give him credit for. I found out, by the way, why he has a 4.01 GPA from Oregon, University of Oregon. What did he take? Oh, no. In, in Oregon, if you get like an A plus or like an A, it's like a 4.3. But if you get like an A minus, it's like a 3. Like basically like they have a plus. Everything's system, just like, like scaled up. Yeah. So like the highest you can get is like a 4.5 or something. Jeez. So like he, he still has a really good GPA. Like he basically got mostly A's and like A minuses. Right. So still like he was really, really smart. So big academic like, guy over here. I think yeah. maybe 4.33 is the highest you can get at Oregon because that's all A pluses. Yeah. Like, you know, because a B plus is a 3.7 or... A B plus is a 3.33, right? Because a B is a 3. Yeah. And then an A plus is a 4.33 at Oregon. So if you get like above a 96, that's an A plus, I think, or 97, whatever the thing is. Damn, Justin. He averaged, like a, he averaged A's or like slightly above A's because 4.01, essentially. And granted, like it is Oregon, but Oregon is not like a bad university. Like, it's hey, we're not, we're not good. slandering universities out here, man. Justin Einstein Herbert is his new name. That's what we're gonna yeah. call him on this podcast. But, I mean, I think personally, like we can like agree. our office. It's our offensive coordinator's first year being an offensive coordinator, so I don't think he's gonna do much. But like, I I really wish we hire like an experienced offensive coordinator like that can throw the book. Like 
imagine if Kyle Shanahan had Justin Herbert, right? Or like Eric Bieniemy, or like some offensive, like, or even Sean McVay, like some offensive minded, like head coach or a really good offensive coordinator. That Dude, if, if Cliff Kingsbury had oh, yeah, Justin Cliff Kingsbury, Herbert. like anybody, like that's good offensively. But instead, we have Shane Steichen, who, you know, yeah. So I picked the Chargers to lose this game because I will do that for the rest of the season. Granted, I did say that at a time when. We didn't look the greatest, but I do still stand by that because our defense is garbage and our coaching is garbage. I think we should fire Anthony Lynn. But, you know, it is what it is, but at least Justin Herbert looks good. So as Justin, long as we're within like 10 points, I count that as a moral victory. Yeah, Justin Herbert's looked good. Broncos are just suspect on both ends of the football. I really don't know what to make of the Broncos. Like, are they a bad, good team or a good, bad team? Like, I really just don't know at this point, but... The most hilarious part, too, is Justin Herbert fits the mold of exactly what John Elway is looking for in quarterbacks. And apparently, if Justin Herbert entered the draft in 2018 like he was supposed to, or even 2019, they were going to draft Justin Herbert. Because he entered Mm -hmm. the 2020 draft, the Chargers had had the higher pick. So, potentially, Justin Herbert could be on the Broncos if he entered the draft where the year Drew Locke did. Because, like, he's the exact prototypical quarterback that John Elway likes. You know, big, tall strong white you know that the exact mold that he's looking for and he kind of is like a better brock Eiswaller in terms of like how he's been playing so far yeah i guess this will be the um, this will be the melvin gordon revenge game what where he fumbles four times instead of two <laughs> nice I mean, dude, like even on the chargers he fumbled the ball a lot that was a big thing with like the chargers is that he fumbled the ball way too much and he still fumbles the ball right? yeah so i don't know we'll see Okay, that's Saints, enough. Bears. Yeah, I um, I think this will be a close game. Personally, a, I think the Saints are going to win this, but I hope Nick Foles. I really hope Nick Foles plays well. Yeah, this is going to be weird because Nick Foles. Do you think he's looked good since they made the quarterback change? I think he's looked bad. Like I think it's just a matter of the Bears' defense really covering for a subpar offense, and Foles just like he does just enough to get you like oh like four field goals or like maybe one touchdown and a couple of field goals he hasn't looked good like people are just on this Nick Foles hype bandwagon train ever since that Super Bowl I just don't see it I I think he's more limited in what he can do than Mitch Trubisky because Trubisky can at least run like if a play breaks down if he has to get out of the pocket Trubisky can give you that like 25 30 yard like occasional huge sprint or just any play to get momentum, but I, I don't like Foles as much as Chicago media and their fans seem to. So, I don't know. I think the Saints win this. I think the Bears defense makes it a game, but again, I just value what New Orleans does on offense, even though Drew Brees apparently can't throw the ball more than 20 yards now. Sad at you not having any faith in Nick Foles. Mm-mm. He is the Saint. He's our savior. I think... His offensive line has kind of let him down. He's been pressured a lot, and he's had to throw the ball away. And Also, his play calling is not doing him any favors. So I think he like, he does really well in RPO scenarios, and like there's certain types of offensive schemes where he plays super well, but they haven't really been implementing those as well as they should have. So hopefully they do this week. The Saints defense is quite good, and they're, they're going to pressure him a lot. So I don't think he's going to have the greatest game. But I think this is the part of the season where historically Nick Foles has played his best football. Even in his bad seasons, he's sort of been a better second half than first half football player. So we're coming into the second half of the season now, week eight. So I think he's going to play well. 
but Nick yeah. Foles has two seasons in which he started ten or more games. Mm-hmm. That's just not a lot. Like people think oh, yeah. Nick Foles is this huge like savior, but he's he a, a backup quarterback who's just slightly overqualified to be a backup Super Bowl MVP. Who beat Tom Brady and the Patriots in the Super Bowl? Oh my God, he's gonna ride the that only other for the rest of his in life, dude. That? Eli Manning. No, and he's you. a Hall of Famer. Yeah, Eli's a Hall of Famer. Nick Foles is like a one shot. Also wonder. a Hall of Famer. He's not a Hall of Famer. Anybody who beats Tom Brady in the Super Bowl should be a Hall of Famer. Yes, and that is where we end the Nick Foles talk because I don't want to spend too much time discussing the merits of Nick Foles as a Hall of Fame player. Niners Seahawks, which I think is the game of the week. Because if the Niners win, this division is just a mess. Right now, the Seahawks still have that like stranglehold on the one spot. But they're, the Rams and the Cardinals are just waiting for the next Seahawks loss. And this is a prime candidate for that. Because the Niners have all of a sudden looked like a competent football team. I think the way they beat the Patriots was just shocking. One, because we don't expect the Niners to be this like world-beating team. Especially coming off how many injuries they've had this season. But you know, they're finally getting... A little bit of help at the right places. Um, Jimmy G looked at least serviceable. I know he threw the two picks, but he did look a little better than the, the first time he came back from injury. Um, Russell Wilson needs a little help from his defense because he can't be expected to just bail out his team every single fourth quarter. And I think they need to do a better job targeting Metcalf because last game, Lockett had a huge game. Like, I, I think it was smart what they did. Like, they went to the open guy because Lockett was just burning every single Cardinals defender in the secondary. So, smart of them to go that way. But they need to get Metcalf involved because then their offense becomes way too one-dimensional when they're just relying on one dynamic receiver. And, yeah, I don't know. I, I have the Seahawks winning this game, but I wouldn't be surprised if the Niners won, like, by a field goal or something like that. Yeah, I mean, what sucks about the Niners is they continue to get injured. Mostert is out again, mm-hmm. right? And it's just even Wilson, who was like the replacement of the replacement of Mostert, is out, right? So mm-hmm. we'll see what they do. But I think, I don't know, I just feel like the Niners are going to take this. They played really well last game. And they seem to have the momentum to capitalize on this. And the Seahawks came off that heartbreaking loss to Arizona. And that was entirely their defense's fault because Russell Wilson really tried everything he could to make them win this game. But I think I agree. This is the game of the week. And what's not the game of the week are the Sunday night and Monday night games, which are absolutely garbage. You know, honestly, this primetime slate of this week has not been good. The Cowboys and Eagles on Sunday night and the Buccaneers and Giants, like, just like the Buccaneers are obviously going to win. The Giants suck, right? And the Cowboys might not have Andy Dalton. He's questionable. So who are they going to start at quarterback, right? It's like, should Nico Hulkenberg come in and be, like, the quarterback for the Cowboys? Like, what's the deal? No, you know? it's Ben so. DiNucci, dude. Oh, no, I was making a Formula One reference. Never mind. You don't get it. I don't. I didn't get it, unfortunately. Nobody that listens to this podcast listens to Formula One, but I it was a good reference. Yeah. You want me to explain the reference or no? It's, sure. Go for it. Okay, so Nico Hulkenberg's his driver. He used to race for Renault last season, but he doesn't have a seat this season. But because of COVID stuff, he's, like, sort of like a reserve driver. So whenever like this like whenever drivers get out, he's like always the guy that comes in. So he came in, and one of the drivers was out for two races because of COVID nineteen, and he ended up doing really well in both those races, and like he did it again when another driver, the other driver on the same team tested positive for COVID, and he came in, and like 
got eighth place and like got points and stuff. So like he was like really really good. So like now whenever there's rumors that somebody gets COVID, like everyone on like the meme pages or everyone on the pages is always like, oh, like Hulking back because his name's Hulking Burke. He's gonna come back. So like Hulking back and like whenever anybody gets COVID anywhere, like even when Trump got COVID. They like put pictures of like Nico Hulkenberg in the White House because like essentially he's the replacement. But yeah, which so like that's why he was gonna replace Andy Dalton because Andy Dalton has a concussion. But you know, a little bit of yeah. a stretch, but no, it was good. It was no, if you got the reference, it was like a good reference. But like, granted, the Cowboys don't have a starting quarterback, and they're gonna start this rookie who like has like half a game of playoff or not playoff playing experience. Yeah, but his but name is his name is like a plus ten factor. Like Ben Denucci is just like I can I can picture this guy from like Ocean's Eleven just like managing a casino. Like that's what his name sounds like. So that's all the Where Cowboys go have going again? for them. Ben Denucci, I have no clue. He went to some random college. Um, he went to James Madison University, which He's is six two six two two oh nine. Virginia. So I don't know what to make of him. Six he, two or six twelve. He's six two. Six twelve is just seven footer. He's six two. Top ten all time at James Madison in five statistical categories. Okay, but how many quarterbacks have went to James Madison University that are good? Hey, wait, wait, hold on. I want to see James Madison QB's alumni. Um, okay, list of Kyle Adams. Um. I don't think I can find a single guy who I've genuinely heard of who is. Okay, well, these are all the drafted players. None of them were quarterbacks other than Mike Cowley, who got drafted by the Colts in 2005. And then, yeah, yeah the, nobody has been playing for the for the James Madison. Oh, oh you know who did go to um, James Madison? You know, you know who uh, PFT commenter is. Yeah. So he went to James Madison. I think that's oh. the only guy I can recognize that's like a famous alumni from James Madison. Well, congrats. That uh, is the I'm... football connection, James Madison and football. But he's not a quarterback. No, I know he's just a guy who he's on part of my take. Like that's all he does. No, I know, but like he's not a quarterback, so like there's no like if you're saying he's top ten in five statistical cat or top five in top ten statistical categories at James Madison, that means nothing because his competition was nothing. Like his quarterbacks weren't that good. Like why did this guy get drafted in the first place? You know what the, the they needed someone in the case that Dak and Andy Dalton got hurt. I'm sure the Cowboys thought of that well in advance when doing their draft research. So. Ben DiNucci is in, and the Cowboys are out. I think the Eagles win this game. Yeah, obviously. Obviously, the Eagles are going to win this game. So, I don't oh. really want to talk about the Bucks versus Danny Dimes because I think Danny Dimes is not going to perform well against the Buccaneers defense. Well, but you know. let's, just, let's just say if the Giants win this game and the Cowboys win, the Giants are a game back first. And let's just say if the Giants win this game, then... Tom Brady is cursed against the New York Giants franchise. Yeah, that's just a... Tom Brady... Which he probably already is, honestly. Dude, I think he's cursed against Nick Foles and the Giants, which is just weird. It's just so odd. Makes sense, though. Makes sense. Okay, but yeah, uh, do you want that... to talk about the NBA now? Mm-hmm. Let's finish up NFL. That's all I wanted to really go over. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so that's basically NFL Week nine, week 8 preview. 
Uh, some stuff happened in the NBA. So yeah, the Nets, the new, not the new Jersey Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, playing out of Barclays Center, have hired as their coach Steve Nash, two-time NBA MVP, future Hall of Famer, and they also hire their coaching staff, Amari Stoudemire. Now, as as the rumors turned out to be, Mike D'Antoni. So. Like who are they missing from that mid two thousand Suns Suns roster? Seven what, they need less? they need Joe Johnson, Sean Marion. They need Sean Raja Marion is Bell. also on the on the coaching roster too. Oh my god! They're literally recreating what they thought they should have won. They should have won a championship with that team, and now they're just trying to do it with Durant and Kyrie. So, I think all of these guys just really wanted a ring. I think it's gonna be so fun having Dan Tony working under Steve Nash. Like, that's just. You already have an offensive mastermind in D'Antoni who revolutionized kind of the way modern NBA offenses are run to an extent. And he kind of elevated Steve Nash to a platform that I don't know if Nash, like if Nash just had his career with the Dallas Mavericks, I think he he would have been a fine point guard. He would have been an all-star type player, but not the two-time MVP we got accustomed to watching just dominate games. So it's going to be fun seeing how D'Antoni rubs off on Nash and how Nash kind of utilizes one of the most lethal potential pick-and-roll pairs in Kyrie and Kevin Durant. Like, that's going to be so fun to watch. I was wrong. Sean Marion's not going to be coaching, but the coaching staff is. Steve Nash as head coach, Mike D'Antoni and Ime Udoka as assistant coaches, Mari Stoudemire as player development assistant, and then Tiago Splitter as assistant coach and player development staff. So Very interesting. Very interesting coaching staff. And then, yeah, let's talk about the 76ers. So they hired Doc Rivers, which we talked about for a bit. But now they really weirdly hired Daryl Morey, former GM of the Rockets, in their front office to head their front office. And it's like Daryl Morey is like the analytics guy. Like all he does is believe in analytics. And he went from basically having a roster where nobody was above 6'10", now being on a team where the entire starting roster Everybody's above 6'10". There's point guard is like 6'10". Or like 6'9", you know, Ben Simmons, right? And like Doc Rivers doesn't believe in analytics at all. But Daryl Morey is like the analytics guy. So like how will this like blend together? How will this work? People have no idea. It's kind of like, it's really, you know what it's like? It's like the White Sox hiring Tony La Russa. It just makes no sense. Well, the, the, I think the La Russa is kind of like a, a fan service move. They're, they just needed to hire someone to replace Renneria because... Renneria overmanaged against the A's this playoffs, and I think that was just... No, but dude, you know only one player was alive when Tony La Russa last managed the White Sox? Like, everybody's older than him. Or, sorry, everybody, he's like he's so old, and like, everybody's super young, and they have Tim Beckham, right? And he's this mm-hmm. like, like, really up-and-coming, like, potential burgeoning superstar that's like, the face of this franchise, and he's like, super swaggy, and like... Are you talking about Tim through. Anderson? No, Beckham. Tim Anderson is the super swaggy superstar on the White Sox. My, oh, my bad. Tim Anderson. I don't know what I thought, thought, thought Beckham. Yeah, Tim Anderson. Dude, sorry. Uh, Tim Anderson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tim he Anderson killed us swaggy. in the playoffs. Anderson was the one dude who just every time he came up to bat, I was like, right, you know what? That's going to be a hit. Just get him on base already. Even just the last game. <laughs> dude, he averaged 643 of the series against the A's. Like, that's yep. crazy, right? And he's obviously very outspoken and social justice issues. But, like, Tony La Russa hates that. He hates people that are outspoken. He hates players that are outspoken. He's, like, the anti what this locker room is. And it's such a young team, such a good team. So, I think it's going to be a terrible, terrible match. 
And I think also Daryl Morey and Doc Rivers makes no sense. I don't know why we suddenly switched from basketball to baseball. That was my No, fault. but okay, listen, like I I don't think Doc is like anti analytics. Like the Clippers weren't like a, a not modern NBA team. Like they had floor spacing, they had a dominant wing centric team, which is kind of where basketball is going anyways. Like they didn't really run offense through a center. So I don't think Doc was like against analytics. And I think now the funny thing that happened since Daryl Morey came to the Sixers is like all the conspiracy theories saying, oh, should we trade Embiid for Harden and pair Ben Simmons and James Harden? And I think both sides have just like firmly said, no, like we're n- this is not something that's been discussed. We're not going to do that. But it does bring into question, what is this Sixers offseason going to look like? Are they going to target some guys who can offer more floor spacing than what they have already? Because I think next season's presumptive lineup is going to be, it's, it's going to be Simmons and Bead. I think they should start Thibault just because his defense is so good. And it, it's another just crazy wing defender to pair with Ben Simmons up top. But then you need two shooters. And I don't, I, Tobias Harris is going to start, but they need that JJ Redick. And JJ Redick would be the perfect piece, but there's no way he's going to go back to Philly. So I think they need to find that guy. Or if they want to move off of one of these crazy albatross contracts they have with Horford and or Tobias Harris package one I don't know if both of them but package one of them along with someone like maybe a Josh Richardson and really go after someone like maybe not Bradley Beal but someone who fits that mold who can just be that that outside presence for a team that really needs it so I'm excited to see how this season plays out in Philly I don't really know if the Rockets experiment is going to continue to work without Daryl Morey because Right now, they're pretty much locked into another season of Westbrook and Harden. And after this season, I don't see any team really taking on Russell Westbrook as a player in their system. So, I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see how this analytics-driven Sixers season plays out. I mean, yeah, and we'll also see how Steven Silas plays out as the head coach of the Rockets, right? We'll see Mm -hmm. what happens there. We'll see what he can do. So, I don't know. There's a lot of questions to be answered, I think. Sure. We can ask Daryl about how he thinks that move is going to play out. Yeah, let's ask him. I, I was saying he's next in line to be a head coach, but you know. Maybe he is. Hopefully he is. Friend of the podcast, Daryl Armstrong. Yeah. Uh, but I think that kind of kind of wraps up what we're talking about. This is a very impromptu episode. Like We didn't really have much of a plan going into this. We were like, all right, we're going to talk World Series. We're going to talk some NFL touch on some of the NBA stuff, but there's a lot of cool stuff coming up. The NBA draft is approaching. Um, I think with all the trades in the NFL and some of the injuries, we're going to really see how these teams shape up in the next few weeks. Um, people are talking about the NBA like, oh, the season might start up in December, which I think is unlikely. I think a lot of players are, they really want their summers. And with the Olympics next summer, I know a lot of them want the season to be done. So, it's going to be an interesting balance between starting the season early and some of the older vets like skipping the beginning of the season. There could be a shortened season. Um, but yeah, a lot of stuff to monitor, a lot of stuff coming up. Ani, anything you want to add? Formula One, just plugs, what? Yeah, Formula One, Lewis Hamilton, 92nd win, the most ever all time. And like, it's really hard to put in perspective what that means because Michael Schumacher's previous record of 91 wins was seemed seemed to be like something unbelievable and 
Lewis Hamilton's on the verge of winning his seventh World Drivers Championship this season, and Mercedes Benz is, you know, on the verge of winning their eighth Drivers Constructors Championship, or sorry, not Drivers Constructors Championship this season. So, you know, it seems like Lewis Hamilton's going to be the greatest of all time when it's all said and done. And I, I really like him. The reason I like him more is because he literally came from like nothing. A lot of Formula One drivers, you know, their their parents are, and it's it's not a sport like basketball or even baseball or football where like anybody can become anything. It's really a sport where you have to put a lot of money into it. So, you know, the people that aren't at the top of the socioeconomic ladder, they don't end up making it into the sport. And Lewis Hamilton is one of the rare exceptions and he happens to statistically be the greatest driver of all time. So, you know, I, I, I'm a thousand percent sure he's going to hit a hundred wins by the time he retires, maybe even more. So we'll see how many wins he ends up reaching by the time he retires. But, you know, he's been a center point of social justice and change and, yeah, and congratulations to him. Huge weekend of Formula One, racing at Imola this weekend. So, you know, first time been there since 2006 and, you know, going to be a heavy weekend. But, yeah, good stuff, good stuff. Yeah, I don't have anything else, honestly. Yeah, um, if you if you find yourself disturbed by any election stuff in the next few days, just we're all of this together. Like, I think... Uh, yeah, I, the election. Yeah, in a that's few days. just a lot of stuff coming up. Like, I don't think we're gonna be too sports focused this next week, so we might be a bit slow on the pods. Um, but yeah, like, stay at home, stay safe. Um, be with your families, whatever makes you comfortable, whatever you think is best for this season. A lot of stress, a lot of divisiveness in our country, but we we keep moving on. That's all we do. Yeah, and COVID cases are rising, so stay safe, uh, be safe, and wash your hands. Yeah, wash your hands, people. Peace.